Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Is globalization really over? Our guest today says yes. Yes, it is. Your host, Ben Robinson, is joined by Mike O'Sullivan, author of The Leveling, What's Next After Globalization? In this episode, Ben and Mike discuss what role the central banks will play in this transition period, what international organizations should be completely reshaped to meet the needs of this new multipolar world, and what new organizations should be created. They also talk about the legacy of Donald Trump and his wrecking ball style of governing, why governments should run more like social media, and more. Mike is former CIO of the International Wealth Management Division at Credit Suisse and currently serves on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on the New Economy. Mike studied at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and started off life as an academic lecturing at Princeton after Ben Bernanke hired him. Enjoy the show. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Structural Shifts podcast. I've been really looking forward to this because we've been, it has been a delayed a couple of times, but we finally got to do the podcast. Yes, thanks. It's a great, great pleasure. Yeah, really delighted to do it. I wanted to kick off by just, you know, I suppose testing a little bit the, the premise of your book, The Leveling. Is globalization really over or is, are we just in a period where it's sort of temporarily in, in retreat? No, I, I think it's dead. I think it's over. I think there are many people, I, I suppose for good reason, whose fortunes are tied to globalization, who don't want it to be over, and who deny its passing. I mean, it's been uh, dwindling as a force in the last two years. We have been storing up many of the the side effects or the perceived side effects of globalization and that I think it's been dealt a uh, a fatal blow by by COVID, and I should say I'm I'm in favour of globalisation. I mean it's done so much good. Billions of people have risen out of poverty. It's transformed cities like London, Dubai, etc. Given us so many technologies, so I'm in favour of globalisation. But my my reading, as it were of the situation is that it's 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 dead and going and we're moving on to something else now and how sort of objectively can we show that it's over because again might it not just be changing form because you know so if, you know if we look at financial flows or trade flows we sure we can show that it's in retreat but what about things like the flow of data is it not just becoming sort of more digital uh, I, I think there's maybe three things just to, to bear in mind. One is that globalization is, sort, is, is, is ephemeral. It's, 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 it's in the ether, in the, in, in the, in, in the sky, in, in the way that people tend to look at it. There's no ministry for globalization. So it's quite hard to get a grasp uh, on it. We do have the benefit of history in that we, we've had a wave of globalization from 1870 to about 1912, which looks very like what we've seen in the last 30 years or so. And that wave of globalization came to a juddering halt with economic crisis, nationalism, etc. So all, all of the warning signs are there. And then thirdly, if I debate globalization with people, 
what I try and do is bring that debate down to indicators, the, the movement of people, the flow of ideas, trade, and all of those have been coming to an end. They have been cut off in different ways. So one example I give is that globalization begun with the fall of communism, the opening up of Eastern Europe, not just economically, but democratically as well. And now we have events like the shutting of democracy in Hong Kong, which is the bookend to what happened with the fall of communism. You, you mentioned digital globalization. I think that's quite interesting because uh, tech and digitization have played a really strong role in globalization, but the channels of digitization are being funneled in different ways. So one example I give you is Google in the sort of early 2000s had about, I think, a third of the search market in China. Now it has close to zero. So what we're actually seeing is we have more digital activity, but it is becoming more regional. You look at TikTok as another example, potentially global company now being shuttered in terms of how it can be used, not just in the US, but also in China and other parts of the world. And why do you think it's over? Because as you yourself said, it's had, you know, it's had massive, massive positive effects. It's a, you know, it's a positive sum activity that raises economic ability, it raises economic activity and wealth for everybody. So, so why do you think it's overall coming to an end? Uh, I, I think that the, 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 prime concern I would have is that the economic engine of globalization has slowed. So many emerging countries, the rate of growth is slowing. In the developed world, productivity has been slowing, notably so in countries like the UK, where it's at multi-decade lows. The financial side effects of globalization, the negative ones have been rising. So the world is becoming more and more uh, indebted, which will slow future growth. And then there's a range of economic problems that people associate with globalization, such as inequality, which in my view is really nothing to do with globalization, but rather the way individual countries have harnessed it. So if you look at the, the most globalized economies in the world, Ireland, Netherlands, etc., income inequality in those countries is actually reasonably well managed because they use tax to distribute the benefits of globalization. If you look at the US, where inequality is really egregious, they have not used their tax system to spread the benefits of globalization. And that creates discontent with, with globalization. Had globalization been better managed, then it wouldn't be coming to an end. I, I think that's 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 largely true. And I think one of the problems we have there really is no minister or prime minister for globalization. It, it is an interconnected, in, interdependent activity. And many of those interdependencies are, are breaking down. The, in our world, it's the, the, the role of the, the state or the nation state is still very, very important. So different countries, and I think COVID is a great example of this, different countries have managed and digested globalization in very different ways with different consequences. You talk quite a lot about Brexit in the book. And, you know, so I, I suppose we should see Brexit as being part of something bigger, right? I.e. the end of globalization. But can we really draw that conclusion? I mean, could, could Brexit not just have been 
you know, a political mistake, a referendum that should never have happened, a unique set of circumstances, you know, the refugee crisis, etc. that, you know, can we not just see Brexit in those terms? I mean, does it have to be read as part of this end of globalization? But that's a very good question. I, I, I think um, to give context, we've had two big waves of globalization. The first of the 19th century to early 20th century, which was led by Britain from London. The second was, was an American wave of globalization. So both waves have been led by Anglo-Saxon countries. And the two main Anglo-Saxon countries, the US and the UK, are now in political crisis. That much is, is clear. And those political crises are also crises of globalization. In the case of the UK, I think there is an argument that you know the, the calling of the referendum or the way it was constructed was accident prone and could have been done done better. I think, however, the way I tend to look at globalization, it's like a big block of ice that's begun to fragment. And the first really big crack in the world order was Brexit, something that people, many people thought would be inconceivable happen. In that respect, it was the first, the first shock. And I think the first really big event that's taken us into the post-globalization age. And why I'm convinced that it's linked with globalization is that many of the, 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 the underlying problems in the end of globalization argument, low productivity, inequality, country dominated by, by one city, one elite, you, you find all of those in, in, in the UK. And I think the what I'm I'm also drawn to is this whole idea of the, the rise and fall of nations and the fact that nations go through cycles uh, and globalization is doing the same. And the UK is now in a cycle where it's in, I, I think, and I hope it's sort of a bottoming out phase. And in the next few years, we'll begin to see things improve and, and, and be reconstructed. So so there is that, that logic to it, I think. How does a country like the UK fair in a world that's deglobalizing because you know it's detached itself from a very large trading block and so now it's you know it's it's seeking i guess new alliances new trading partners in a world that's become less interested in trading so how does how does that play out do you think yeah it has a lot of risks and one of the risks i think is that the like the discourse in westminster and in london is not really focused on what's happening to the world order. It's really very inward focused. And and this is a risk that things shift outside the UK and and it doesn't adapt. So I I think that there there, there are several things. The most important, I think, is that the post-globalized world order will be a multipolar one. What I mean by that is you'd have at least three big regions, China, Europe, the US, who for for reason of their size, would be dominant, but also who will do things increasingly differently. So if you look at the way the EU is imposing itself, the tech world in terms of regulation, that's a good example. So the UK needs to ask itself, well, right, okay, first of all, do we want to be outside this very powerful block? And that decision is, is already made. So then it becomes a relative decision is how, how do we position ourselves between these big uh, blocks and in particular, two of them, the U.S. and Europe, are very, very close political and trade partners. And my hope would have been that the U.K. acts to arbitrage these regions. It's a sort of a, it's a sort of third independent 
but not neutral party whose upholding of the rule of law makes it somewhere where people feel very secure to do business. So, so in that light, the declaration in Parliament that the UK would break the rule of law is, is extremely worrying. And I think the international consequences of this have not been thought out at all. What role do you think central banks are playing? I mean, are you, do you think their role is helpful or not in the sense that, you know, they, are they sort of smoothing the transition period by, you know, by cushioning economies from some of the worst economic effects of the transition? Or do you think they're prolonging the transition and exacerbating some of the ills of the current age, such as wealth inequality? Yeah, so, so this is a, it's a very good question, quite a, quite a complex area. We would probably feel the end of globalization more severely if it weren't for central banks. But the, the cure is, is arguably storing up worse down the line. So the, the way I, I tend to phrase it is that coming out of the global financial crisis, central banks were like doctors who gave uh, financial morphine to the economic patient you know, a doctor, if, you, if you're injured, he, may, he or she may give you morphine for a couple of days, take the pain away, but they won't do it for every day for 10 years. And that's what we've had. Uh, and to that end, markets, investors, many other players have become dulled and stultified to the reality of economics and, and what's happening. So we've had no inflation except in, in asset prices. Valuation for Government bonds for many equities, particularly technology equities, are at all-time highs. We, what we have is we have bubbles in financial markets, which potentially rob future generations of the returns they will need for their pensions. And I, I think at the same time, what the, the cover of central banks has done is to make it much less urgent for politicians to address underlying economic problems. So if you look at Europe... There's actually been relatively little reform on things like capital markets union, banking reform, all these things that were super urgent nine years ago, where we had promises from finance ministers that they would be addressed. Pretty much nothing has been done. Yes, slowing down reform. And also, it's, I guess it's also um, removing some of the you know, this market censoring that happens to, to politicians and to political ac actions, right? So... You know, you might argue, and sorry, I don't want to get into counterfactuals, but you might argue that in the run-up to Brexit, there, there would have been harsher market movements, right? Um, because there was because the central bank was intervening. Uh, that, that's absolutely true, and I, I think it also raises the it raises many sort of legal questions too, as to to what end should central banks go in terms of trying to intervene in. In markets and economies. And you now have a, a situation where central banks are trying to mandate themselves or justify themselves on a whole range of criteria. The European Central Bank is now adopting the mantle of the green economy. In the US, the Congress has proposed that the, the Fed do everything it can to reduce racial inequality, which is a, a, a just cause, but it's much, much better left to politicians and, and lawmakers than central banks. I, I, I don't know how they would go about doing that. Well, what we, what we want in democracies is we want parliaments and governments to address these problems, not central banks to 
if you like, swamp the whole political economy in, in, in terms of what they are, what they're trying to do. If we break those things down then, so first of all, how do we sort of depoliticize central banks? Because as you say, it's absurd to think that, you know, the body in charge of monetary policy could affect racial inequality. So how do we depoliticize central banks? So we, we went through, the world went through from the 70s onwards, um, many central banks were politicized in that their governors or presidents had in some way ties to the governments who appointed them. And then we went through a phase where central banks were trying to crush inflation, which was politically very unpopular. Best example was Paul Volcker in the US. And we, we've gone through an era of independent central banks who are run by technocrats, civil servants, independent from 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 politics uh, and that is beginning to to change i think there is a sense that maybe in the states that that the 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 heads of the central banks are somehow siding with the the mandates of individual governments it's been the case certainly in 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 japan uh, and i think that there's several things we can do i think the appointment process for central bankers is important and also the the people who populate the the committees of the central banks stressing their mandates and narrowing their mandates is also very important and maybe i think in future what we probably need another crisis to get over this is uh, a curbing of of extraordinary powers like quantitative easing that's when it was introduced it was something that was considered you know off the charts and now it's it's some it's normal uh, so there needs to be a debate about the the the, the extraordinary powers that that central banks have. Yes, yeah, so that was going to be my second question, which is how do we sort of roll back the balance sheets? How do we deleverage central banks? Because I think in the I think in the book you say that the debt levels and this I guess you know the book is already out for a year, so we're even they're even higher, right? Particularly post COVID. But you said they're they're as high as they've ever been since the Napoleonic Wars, right? Yeah. So how do how do we deleverage central banks and get back to some sort of sensible level of leverage? So the, the background background picture to this is that world debt to GDP levels have been rising. That they're, they're passing out the previous high of the Second World War on course, as you said, to to hit the highs of the the period around the Napoleonic Wars. And that's quite extraordinary if you think of the the events associated with that. One of the reasons debt is, is, is rising is because interest rates are so low. Governments, companies find it very, very easy to borrow. And in particular, government debt is being hoovered up by the central banks. Now, there, there's a number of ways of, of, of sort of walking back from this. One is the, the enlightened approach where policymakers decide, look, we, we've there's just too much leverage in the world system. We need to pare it back. And that's done in a collaborative way across central banks. I don't think that's going to happen. That would be too ideal. This is what you refer to as the, the new Westphalia, right? On, uh, it is. Book, right? Yeah. Yeah. We need a reordering of finance in the world along the lines of the, the Westphalia Treaty of sort of 1648. And that's a very grand example. But you know, the, the, the size of central banks, the size of debt in the world is the the biggest in centuries. So we, we, we do need sort of a grand setting for this. 
I, I sadly think that we are storing up the ammunition for the next financial crisis, which would be a crisis of debt and debtedness. And it would probably come about by you know, additional QE from central banks not working and not functioning, a loss of confidence. And then for the first time in some time, people begin to look to get the money they've lent back, either from governments or countries, projects, companies, and it, it's just not there. You get a, a, a deep recession. Maybe central banks will try more QE and that, that won't work because often in a credit crunch, you know, monetary power can, in a deep credit crunch, monetary policy can lose its, 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 its power. So, so that's a sort of a, a negative, nasty scenario, which I don't like to paint. But in the absence of enlightened policy, that, that, that's a potential route for the, for the future. And I can't resist asking you this, just because I know we're going to go slightly off topic here. But how? Because you used to be a CIO, so I, you know, I've, 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 it's too tempting not to ask this, right? But how does one position a portfolio for a world where, you know, there's a there's a there's a you know massive governmental debt crisis on the horizon? Yeah. So, so I, I think you do you do a number of things. The first thing I suppose is to figure out what really is uh, a safe asset. So what government debt will will you feel really really safe holding i mean then that that's why german bonds for example continue to trade at a at a negative a negative yield because it's one of the true safe assets maybe dutch debt as well i i think you can begin to invest in so if i had a portfolio and there was private equity in it for example i i would switch that into things like distressed debt funds long short credit funds I think what you can begin to do as well is to look at tail risk strategies. So that's quite a technical term. And what it means is that these are strategies that would form a, a small part of the portfolio. But if an extreme of negative event happened, they would pay off uh, quite handsomely. And they would tend to be kind of derivative based or derivative type strategies. And, and then also, I think, you know, you in, in other parts of, the, of a portfolio, you want to aim to hold companies that have got a lot of cash and less debt. Ironically, some of the big tech companies fall in that, in that, in that category, even though they have uh, somewhat stretched uh, valuations. So just coming back um, to the book and the end of globalization, how do, we, how do we get back to sustained organic growth? Because some of the things that you talk about in the book are, are, have become, I guess, slightly passe or old-fashioned, right, which is yeah. you advocate for things like education and reskilling and things that, you know, don't seem to be top of, of the political agenda right now. So is that what we need, do you think? We need to get back to education and, and, and reboosting productivity because um, that's the only sort of route back to sustained organic growth. I, I think someone said, maybe it was Paul, I think Paul Krugman, that, you know, in, in – for, for developed countries that in the long run productivity is is everything and I, I agree with that because it, it's the main unless you've got rapidly changing demographics it's the main and perhaps the only way to to boost economic growth and I think the the first step is that there needs to be a debate um, and a movement amongst governments to focus on productivity and focus on on what I, I would call trend growth so what's the, the you know, it's it, what's your 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 sort of trend level of of growth, and the best way to improve that is through productivity. As you said, many of the 
the things that drive productivity, you know, reskilling, education, uh, careful investment in, in technology and sort of, you know, country strategy, they have been forgotten. If you look at what's happening to education and educational attainment rates in the US, that, that's quite alarming. And many of the other factors around that, things like human development, are regressing. Uh, so you're right that they're, I mean, they're, they're worse than passe. They're just being being degraded. And there's really no other way for developed countries to grow in the long term. You can do trade wars. You can try and convince countries to, to reshore investment. But that's all one-off kind of short-term stuff. The real driver of growth is, is, is through productivity. And I think many, the problem many politicians have with this is that we are in short political cycles. So by the time you've invested in the factors that drive productivity, you only see the benefits of that maybe five, 10 years down, down the line. And I, want to, I wanted to ask you about the US elections in November, because you, you make the point in the book, you, you say, you sort of draw the parallel with the 1980s and you say, you know, people were fixated with the end of communism and they failed to spot what was coming next, which was this period of rapid um, globalization and internationalization of trade and everything. And to some extent, you say the same thing here. Now, we're obsessed with a little bit the political circus and we're missing this bigger shift. But to what extent, you know, does, is Donald Trump and this US election a circus versus being really important in determining how we transition to this new world, you know, whether it's a smooth transition, an elongated transition, etc. Um, he is very important, and I think I think what is important is that it, you know Donald Trump as an individual has a lot to be responsible for, but he has come at a time when that, that's maybe apt in that it's the end of an era, and he is the the human wrecking ball breaking down the old order. He is not going to be the person to build up. The, the new order. And he has also been enabled by many people, uh, principally on the Republican side, for whom it's convenient to have him as, as president. I think it's quite clear that you know, four years of Donald Trump has broken many things. Diplomatically, he's broken uh, America's diplomacy with Europe, with parts, parts of the, the Middle East, but not, not, not all obviously broken with uh, diplomatically with, with China and some general confusion. And he's also, I think, devalued many of the institutions in the US, the State Department, some of the financial institutions as well. And, and then in that background, four more years of Donald Trump would make permanent all of these ruptures. And it would cause the rest of the world to maybe ignore America. Europe in particular will tend to go its own way. I think countries like China will be more and more convinced that the US is in turmoil and it is weakened and Russia will probably have the same view uh, and they will act uh, accordingly. Uh, and I think that that will, will, will well and truly break globalization. If there's any doubt that globalization is over, four more years of, of Trump will, will, will entirely smash that. Joe Biden, for his part, I think will not be a transformative president, but a restorative president in that he will restore the status quo. He will repair 
the state, the State Department, his team, I think, are very strong on foreign policy, maybe less so on the economy. And he will, I think, restore, in particular, restore relations with, with Europe and try and rebuild partnership with Europe to the detriment, I think, of Russia and maybe China as well. But I guess the point that many people would make is, as you said, he's a, he's a wrecking ball. He's, you know, he's, he's gutting institutions domestically, globally. But in a way, is that necessary? Do we, do we need to break these institutions in order to remake them? You know, so would a Biden presidency, as you say, restore the institutions or do, you know, or, or, but are those institutions still fit for purpose? So I suppose the question is, you know, do we need a Donald Trump? Do we need four more years of Donald Trump to hasten this transition to the new world? Or would it be a disaster and lead to a much, much more, you know, uncontrolled transition to the new world? I hesitate to, 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 to recommend four more years of Donald Trump, but <laughs> a lot of what you're saying, which, which, I, which I accept, which is that you know, we, we, we're, in, we're in the midst of a paradigm shift, which is a very overused phrase. And you only get paradigm shifts once you know, for a number of, of, of decades, maybe centuries. And you only get the rebuilding when a lot of the old order is, is broken down and there is chaos. And then people come forward with uh, new ideas and new initiatives. And the reason I think we need more breaking is the level of denial amongst governments and companies that things can go on as they were, I think, is still very, very high. And that denial needs to be broken. So if you take as an example the debate over the World Trade Organization, which is potentially a, a, a defunct and irrelevant organization in the context of a sort of a multipolar world, the debate now as to whether we just have a new a new leader and someone who's not from Europe or, or or the states and everything will be fine. And you have similar debates about the World Health Organization, the the World Bank, and not about you know should these institutions be radically changed uh, or displaced, and what institutions of the future do we need to do we need to have? And do you have a view on some of that or not? So you know. If, if could you know, I don't want to run through the list of all the international yeah, yeah. organizations like the IMF and so on, but you know, are some of them still capable of doing the job we need them to do, or do you think it's you know a total reboot? I, I would prefer a total reboot. I think some have remained relevant, like the OECD, because they've had the good sense to attach themselves to a, a bigger framework in the shape of the G20. They're sort of the, the think tank of the G20 now. Others, I think, should be completely reshaped. The World Bank, I think, should be relocated physically to Africa, which is the one part of the world that really needs the help of the, the World Bank. And then I think there needs to be a, a debate on what the institutions of the 21st century need to be. Do we need, for example, an, an institution on climate change that has got the power to find governments and companies in a forceful way for uh, climate damage. We need an institution to govern cyberspace and cyber warfare and cyber crime. We don't have that. We don't have an international sort of police force for the, for the internet. So, so there's all these things that are beginning to crop up as future problems and have not yet been framed either in philosophy and law or, or by, by institutions. 
Just talking about also moving to the to what comes after globalization. So you, you you've used the paradigm shift, and you've also used the term multipolar world. Is that is that what globalization gives way to? Is it does globalization become a multi multipolar world? I, I think so. So this is the. Um, I mean, there, there are many scenarios we can continue with globalization as it is, which I think is unlikely. We can have a lapse into chaos and disorder, like the 1910s and 20s, or I think what's much more likely is you have a multipolar world, which I think the way to look at it is that it's not so much one dominated by big regions as to the fact that these big regions do things increasingly distinctly or differently. So again, come back to the internet. I mean, the US has got the big internet giants and they are stock market monsters. China has cut off its internet, but it has a thriving e-commerce sector. And then Europe doesn't have any of these big internet companies, but it is the becoming the 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 regulator of the internet and looking to protect people from the ills of the internet. For how long can it seek to regulate the internet without those platforms? Because it's like, you know, it doesn't have the, you know, it's kind of control, you know, to use an analogy from a previous podcast, it's sort of trying to control the seas without, you know, a navy or an infrastructure, right? It's Yeah. So, so it, it can because of its size and the, the power of its economy and the fact that Europe in particular is very, very sophisticated in terms of policy and and regulation. So if Britain were to try and come up with its own set of rules for the internet or how British people uh, consume the global internet, it may well not be able to do so. But Europe is, is obviously much bigger. And I think the way we're going now is we're going towards a, a values-based multipolar world. So what I mean by that is that when it comes to, to economics and, and politics and climate change, each of the, the big regions has got very different values and approaches. Uh, and those values will inform how they build out their economies. So Europe is, is, it wants to protect its citizens and their data. It's also very strong on the environment. And many of the new policy plans we, we hear about from Europe are, are focused on the green economy. Much less so in, in 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 the states, where there's just a a very different balance between, say, you know, society and 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 the the economy. And then China has its own very distinct set of values, which I think we don't spend enough time trying to understand in in the West. And I think it has its own risks and its own complexities, which are maybe not readily apparent in, in say, newspaper headlines. So it's it's not it's not entirely kind of a fluid and and if you look at the Chinese Communist Party, which is a very big machine, inside it you have lots of different groups and rivalries that effectively mirror what what you have in in Western politics, just that they're all under the same big sort of disciplined umbrella. But I, I think in China the secret is not just the 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 the, the vision, but also the implementation. I mean, they they can implement policy for such a big country in a, in a very very speedy kind of way. The the sort of pull, the gravitational pull is U.S., China, Europe. What countries that aren't in those uh, 
countries or in those regions have to choose between them. So, you know, will Africa have to align itself with the USA or will India, and it looks increasingly like India is already um, aligning itself with the US. Is that what it will be? It will be a question of choosing between one of these poles for everybody else. Yeah. So, so I, I think there's, there's maybe a few things here. So I think countries who fall between the poles, so Japan and Asia and Australia, they are between America and China the UK, Russia, in Europe, they're on different sides of, of Europe, obviously, they will potentially find life more difficult because they're not as big as the, 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 the three poles uh, and they're sort of mid-sized powers and they have to come to terms of, with that and, 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 and reshape their own identity. I mean, you know, Russia has its own crisis and that it's, it's a military power but not a, an economic or financial power. I think other parts of the world are interesting. India, if you add it on to the area of the, the Emirates, is potentially in time another pole, but it has a lot to travel in terms of its development in order to get there. And then I think for countries like you know Nigeria, Bangladesh, who are populous and growing, I mean, they have lots of choices. They can sort of say, well, let, let's co-opt ourselves to China and the Chinese model or do we still follow what the Americans have done or what the Swiss or the Irish have done? Or they can kind of say, well, look, we, we just do it our own way. So I actually think that these countries, there's maybe 10 of them, you know, big populous countries in Asia and Africa who have not yet really globalized or developed where they go in the future and how they do it and what templates they use. And you see them as potentially in a strong almost bargaining position or, or arbitrage position, you think, between those poles? Not yet. I think, I think what they need to do, and this is where some of the new, the new institutions of the world order will come in, is that they, these countries perhaps need to, to collaborate better in terms of you know, building up their own cooperative institutions so that they, they collectively have more power vis-a-vis the US or, or, or China, as it were. You're a big fan of small countries, right? Because you've, you know, if you've, if you just, you just said, right, just use the example of Switzerland and Ireland. So s- small countries that are, you know, are very globalized in the sense that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're magnets for, for certain kinds of information trade flows. Are you still as bullish about those small countries in this sort of deglobalizing world? I am. So I'm obviously, you know, as an Irishman who's lived in, in Switzerland, quite, quite biased and, how I got involved in the whole globalization debate is I wrote a book years ago on Ireland and globalization. At the time, Ireland was the most globalized country in, in the world. And I'm still bullish about them because, and I think this has been shown by the, the coronavirus crisis, is these countries in general, they have a resilience and they have a robustness. So, by virtue of being small and being open to world trade, they're also very much aware of what's going on in the world and what need what they need to do to correct against some of the imbalances that they will suffer. And the countries I'm, I'm I have in mind are the likes of Sweden, Switzerland, Norway, Ireland, Singapore, etc. They're all very different in terms of their culture and politics, but they are. They have similar problems, but also similar ways of dealing with them. They tend to be the best countries who have this mix of, you know, strong rule of law, very good institutions, trust in in experts, investment in in education, etc. 
So, so that that model for me is still one that that's that's really really relevant today. And how do you align that or reconcile that with also being a fan of sort of supranational bodies like the EU? I mean, would would it not be a good thing to for power then to to be devolved down increasingly to sort of nation states or even cities within nation states? Because if small is better, if small is more agile, if small is you know more resilient, then is it we not is there not an argument for for fragmentation you can i mean you can call it fragmentation you can call it devolution as well i think what you may see is that you may see countries like france become a bit more devolved uh, to its regions in terms of taking some of the the power that's concentrated in paris and devolving that to some of the regions that doesn't mean that france is going to break apart or that europe is going to break apart quite the opposite because all of these countries are still happy to have the the umbrella of the EU and to enjoy its laws on data protection, etc. I, I think also that globally, we do need to look at governance. So climate change is my, my favorite example here where you have uh, many countries signed up to the Paris Accord, but it doesn't really have teeth. And it's not in my view, really contributed anything in terms of lessening climate damage. Um, what you find is many of the big cities in the world, however, are much more progressive uh, and much more green than their individual governments. So my, my suggestion would be that you have a, uh, a sort of Paris Accord between big cities and that it has teeth. They can, for example, tax their, their hinterland. They're better in control of pollution in their economic hinterland, they tend to be more advanced in terms of infrastructure and green policy than, than individual countries. So that's maybe one way to look at, at, at governance, I think. Work practically for other issues, because you still need a sort of supranational accord, right, that, that cities sign up to. Would you need the same thing when it came to, I don't know, cybersecurity or um, do you want to think what else is coming down the road? You know, genomics or you know, or, or digital currencies or what? You know, how how would you simultaneously have global accords yeah. you know, in, in a deglobalized world with with you know city states taking more responsibility? Yeah, so I, I think cities are probably apt for for climate change. I think something like cyber, you know, you need a cyber accord probably between uh, five at least five countries. You know, the, and, and most of those would be on the UN Security Council. They are the cyber powers of the world, plus a bunch of others, because they are the ones who are either initiating or defending many of the the cyber the cyber attacks and cyber wars. And you, you know, this is an area of activity where there are no rules. So you know, there's no there's no template or rule that says if. Russia hacks me, I'm allowed to fire back a missile because that's uh, hacking me or hacking my hospitals is a, is a declaration of war. It's an aggressive act. So I, I, I think you, you, you need increasingly to, to match the institutions to the sort of the locus of the problem, the locus of the, of, of the issue. Who are the levelers? <laughs> and w w why, why do they matter? And one of the terms, or one of the related terms, is the agreements of the people. Yeah. What are the agreements of the people? Okay, so the, the, the levelers is a somewhat obscure story, but probably one of the most important in, in British history. And I'm, I, I'm guessing many people haven't heard of them. 
I used to live in Putney and I'd never oh. heard of them. So, yeah. Well, there you go, you see. So my, my, my starting point is that we're in a world where lots of issues are emerging and lots of well-placed frustrations are being vent, you know, from gender inequality, you've got Black Lives Matter. There's, so there's a whole, and you've got then democracy-based struggles in, in Belarus. And you can go on for quite a long time. So it, it's, it is definitely a period of turmoil where democracy and, and rights and liberties are being contested. I, in some respects, I'm not a fan of a lot of this political debate on Twitter, and I wish a lot of it were more constructive and that they were more constructive channels. And I, I look at a lot of these protest movements and, and you ask yourself, you know, can, can they go beyond protesting? And how would you sort of take a movement forward and make it concrete and begin to embed it in changes and in laws? And I recall reading a couple of books a long time ago on the, the Putney debates which happened in the middle of the 17th century in Britain. So the king was captured by Cromwell's new model army. And with the king being captured, people had a had an inkling of what a parliamentary democracy might look like. And they begun to debate this down in, in Putney. It was called the, the Putney Debates. And it was primarily a debate within the army, the soldiers and the officers. And one very important cohort were a group called the Levellers, who, you know, effectively were kind of social democrats of of the day. And they and their leaders came up with a template called the Agreement of the People. Quite a short template, but it's really in tangible form what the people wanted from government and from parliament. And I think that's missing today and that needs to be reconceived. For for lots of somewhat bizarre and interesting reasons, the these agreements of the people uh, were written down, but then not fully transcribed for another, or, or rediscovered for another 200 years. So it's an example that was for a while lost to history, but it was the first uh, popular expression of what a constitutional democracy would look like at a time in Europe when Europe was just beginning to, you know, throw out some some huge innovations in 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 politics and, and nation states. So a very important time. And I actually think that if people today can look at these agreements of the people and use them as a rough template for what they want, because they were very practical. You know, they talked about people being treated equally in by the debt courts. They they advocated limited political terms to reduce corruption. So foreshadowing many of the things we have today. Uh, and I think it's a useful template for taking many dissatisfactions with politics and many movements and making them concrete and also constructive, which I think is is largely missing. I, I really like your idea of getting off Twitter, right? Because as you say, right, first of all, you know, Twitter tends not to lead to anything that's particularly concrete, but also Twitter tends to lead to massive bifurcation, right? Which is it's very difficult to hold the center ground on Twitter because, you know, it's it's the it's the extremes that gain traction on on, on a platform like Twitter. So, but I suppose the question is, you know, how, how is this so different from, from electing representatives and with, you know, with well-defined mandates in the first place? Are you just saying that, that we as a, as a, as constituents would put forward our ideas and then almost the political parties would be formed to then 
put those in, into statute and into into place. Is that, would that be the difference then? So rather than you know the political class coming up with the manifestos that we then vote on, we it becomes much more bottom up. It, it should, I guess, it should ideally be be more bottom up. I think there's a sense also that many political parties are somewhat jaded in terms of what they what they represent. And and maybe one question, which I think we haven't seen yet, is whether we get new political parties, new political entrepreneurs coming coming through. And I think there is dissatisfaction, you know, that what we, what we are seeing as well, we are beginning to see fracturing of political systems where dominant parties are being pushed aside. You've seen that in France, the two dominant parties pushed aside. It's interesting you haven't seen it in the UK or the US yet that the the two party systems remain remain dominant. But I, I think there needs to be channels constructed for for taking you know what I think are well founded grievances and and getting those into law. And that, that there's a lot of, for example, there's a lot of work now being done in social media, such as petitions for Parliament in the UK. Uh, a lot of work being done there in social media to get people's petitions into Parliament. So, so that there are, there are changes beginning to come through, but perhaps not not as certainly not as 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 fast as I thought would happen. I, I like the idea too because I, I, one of the things that I that I think the sort of contrast between Twitter, again to use that analogy, and the way we do politics is now become enormous, right? And and the and the politics hasn't kind of responded yet because. You know, I think what Twitter is doing is sort of giving us the sense that we know as much as the political class. And I think you really saw that during COVID, right? which is everybody thought they knew as much about you know how to cope with this crisis as as the political class did, because it gives that impression of sort of you know the narrowing of of or, or, or the you know the, these this the sort of information asymmetry disappearing, which is an illusion, right? But but I think what would be good would be to sort of reboot politics to be more like social media in the sense that as you say right that you could treat it like a platform which is you know we could contribute all of our ideas and then you could build new political parties on on top of a platform which would then be much more sort of you know networked and yeah and responsive to to changing ideas is, is that sort of what you had in mind then you know um that it would become more networked and responsive to in a way it is and again one lesson I, I remark on in the book with the levelers is that they were idealistic and <laughs> partly as a result of that, I mean, they were very good at things like pamphleteering. So they were the social media geniuses of their time, but they were out, totally outmaneuvered by the the incumbents. Um, so that there is a kind of, you need to be, I think there is a cynicism required as to how the political system works which needs to be matched with idealism and a desire to change things. You know, I, I use the example of Emmanuel Macron, who is seen as being a revolutionary political figure. But he, I think what he figured out was that the best way to do a so-called revolution is to take the system from the inside, not the outside. Now, he, he, he had the help of many parts of the system and the institutions in doing so. But it seems to me that that's a sort of a speedier way to to changing politics than trying to do it from the outside. I come to this asking the question, which is, do, how satisfied are you with Emmanuel Macron, somebody living in France, or how how much do you think he's really mm, changed politics? Because it seemed to me that a bit like Obama, he or a bit like Donald Trump, um, he used digital means to campaign in a completely different way, but. The governing has been almost, you know, very traditional. 
Would you would, would you accept yeah. that? It has been traditional in that he, uh, I mean, he has replaced one elite with another younger one, for sure. He and, and all the people, are, pretty much all the people around him reflect the fact that France is still very much elitist in terms of politics and that they've all, they all have the same formation, the men and women, the same views, education. It's, I mean, it's more stark than, say, the, the UK is. So it's, he, he and, and the people around him are still very much a product of the French system, the French elite. They've just, I think, made it a lot, a lot more fresh. I mean, I think there are areas where he stands out. He's, I, I don't think he's any way he's, he's corrupt. I think he's absolutely sincere in what he wants to do. And he's, a very, he's very, very driven in that sense in terms of implementing his, his vision. I think what he has changed in my view, compared to the two previous presidents, Sarkozy and Hollande, I think with both of those, there was a sense that they were kind of filling a gap and that they might not be around for sort of the next four or five years after. Whereas Macron, I think people have a sense that, you know, perhaps he'll be here for, for, for another term and that we will have a Macron era, that he has the time to implement changes. And he, I think before the, the Gilets jaunes, he was, you know, he had already implemented some some quite 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 impressive labor market changes france needs more of those i i think also one area that's clearly open to him is europe and european politics and and certainly the energy for european politics and and political initiatives in europe is very much in paris it's not in germany we will have soon have the the sort of the post merkel era politics will be a lot more fractured which will leave france as the dominant country driving uh, policy in Europe. If Brexit was the first sign of the post of the the end of globalization, is TikTok the first sign of the post globalized world? It, it is actually. It's it, it, it's it, it's an important sign because it shows how a service that sh- that should, I suppose, in many respects, be harmless. And that should be global and that people in, in many countries can use it, but has been used for political ends, can become carved up in the manner of this multipolar world. So, you know, in the US and China, there are clear barriers around the use and the ownership of different parts of, of TikTok, which, you know, begin to at the same time sketch out the the map of this this multipolar world that's coming. Last question, COVID. Do you think that this is again laying bare the fact that we have reached the end of globalization? Or do you think it's a reason to be optimistic because it's a excess, well, it's it's a crisis that all countries face and really should galvanize us to work together? It, it's it's certainly been a test. Been a, a dramatic test, and I think what individual, you know, healthcare companies, universities have worked together. The absence of collaboration between countries and regions for me has been the litmus test, uh, and the litmus test that shows that we are at the end of globalization and heading into a more singular, maybe more selfish, multipolar world. In in previous crises. 
you, you, you've seen countries and governments collaborate, global financial crisis being, being an example. And we've just had an absence of that this time. They've, they've squabbled over vaccines and masks, et cetera. So, so that's something, that's a lesson that needs to be borne in mind. You would just argue then that COVID, again, exemplifying what the new world would look like, look like at the same time as it's probably bringing it forward faster. I think so. I think it's, it's accelerated this whole thesis for sure. Mike, thank you very much in, indeed for coming on the podcast. It was good. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.